Read with Michelle Martin on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Read. I'm Michelle Martin, and we are reading The Apple and the Tree, an intimate account of what it means to grow up the daughter of one of the world's best known politicians, a former prime minister who, to quote the book, looms large in the Malaysian imagination. Marina Mahathir is here to talk about her newest and perhaps most personal book. She really needs no introduction, so I'm going to keep it brief. She's an iconic voice and public figure, not only in Malaysia, but around the world, an HIV AIDS activist, writer, women for UN 2010, UN 2010's Person of the Year, and a woman who for six years served on the board of Sisters of Islam, which advocates for justice and equality for Muslim women. Marina Mahathir has written a book that tells the story really from a perspective like no other, one that only she could really tell, answering the question, what is it like to be Dr. Mahathir's daughter? Welcome, Marina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, for a long time, uh, Marina, people in my seat, interviewers sitting across you, would really quake at the idea of asking you a question that would imply we were trying to get at understanding your father through you. Uh, you know, we were worried you'd walk out of the interview. So <laughs> is this a topic that you bristled at for a long time, the very heart of this book? I did, I did, especially when I was much younger and I just came back from university, just started working. And that was about the same time that my dad became PM. So that was everyone's favorite question. What is it like? What is it like to be Dr. M's daughter? And I really did bristle. You know, it became very annoying, very irritating until I started to think, well, you know, what do I have to say for myself that is more interesting than that question? You know, do I have mm. anything else that I do that people could ask me about? At, at that time, I was pretty much an unknown quantity and all they knew about me was the fact that I was Dr. M's daughter. So I can't really blame them. And so it it really uh, made me want to hunker down and do something for myself. So I, I worked in a magazine, I worked in PR, and then later on, I um, worked in HIV, which was really uh, the time when I think I came into my own and, and people kind of stopped asking me only that question. They still kept it in, but, you know, there were other questions to ask as well. <laughs> you write in the book that the title, a very unusual title, comes from your daughter's response when you catch her being cheeky. It's sort of a code yeah. between the two of you, apple and tree. And yes. so when it comes to that question, does the apple fall from the tree when it comes to your relationship with your father? Uh, in a nutshell, would you say there are some very key differences? Yeah, I think, you know, we've we've grown up quite differently. You know, he, he was born before... World War II, went through the war and then went to university in Singapore and that sort of thing. Whereas I was born in the 50s, you know, the same year that Malaysia became independent, Malaya became independent. And then later on, he sent me off to school in the UK. And so I think my exposure was quite different. I, I just had different experiences growing up. So I think it was inevitable that I have different ideas about how things should be. Some of it is his fault because uh, he sent me <laughs> off to California when I was 16. You know, how do you send a child to a place like California to stay with a family we knew very well? 
um, mm. and then not expect her to to change. So yeah, I think it was it's inevitable. I think probably every parent faces this, but for mine, it it seemed particularly stark, especially when I also became a public figure and I was writing a column in a newspaper, and then people began to see you know differences in approach and and things like that. Yeah. So when you grow up with such a giant figure as a father, I mean, not everybody has the country's former prime minister to call dad. Do you feel pressure to walk in his shoes, at least politically, at any time of your life? Um, I always like to remind people that I did not grow up as the PM's daughter. I grew up as the daughter of this doctor from Alastar, uh, our little town who, who then joined politics, because he became PM when I was 24. So I was a grown-up, you know. I, I had gone off to study, I'd come back, I started work, and then he became PM. Um, but having said that, in my adult years, this is when I, I got asked a lot whether I was going to follow in his footsteps, whether I was going to go into politics and that sort of thing. And I've always replied, no, <laughs> no, because I've seen it. I guess from the inside, it doesn't really appeal to me. And I quite like being an activist on the outside because then I just work on principle and I can hold anybody accountable. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter whether they're in government or they're in opposition. Uh, if mm -hmm. they say the wrong thing, if they do the wrong thing, I can call them out without feeling like I'm, you know, being disloyal to somebody or other. I'm glad you reminded us that your dad was a politician, a doctor first. Dr. Mahathir was a politician, but a doctor first. Uh, remind yes. us what kind of doctor. He was a practicing doctor. And did that provide yes. grounds for you understanding each other, given your work as an HIV activist later on in life? Yes, it helped a lot. He was a, a GP, you know, a private practitioner in, in our little town. And he always kept up uh, with medicine, even though he, he obviously had to stop practicing once he joined the government in 1974. But, you know, he kept in touch with his medical school colleagues, uh, for example. And when it came to HIV, he understood the medical issues very easily, just like he does now with COVID. Uh, but, you know, all epidemics, all pandemics, are about more than medicine and, and biology. There's also a, about social issues and legal issues and all sorts of things. So those things he's not so okay with. So I felt a great responsibility to, to tell him about those things, you know, to talk about the issues that make people vulnerable to HIV, for instance, and make them find it difficult to access uh, the medicines, etc. And once I had the opportunity to explain that to him, he generally understands because he's, he's quite good at putting things together and seeing the larger picture of a pandemic. You have written as a columnist, you have written publicly. And what happens, take us behind the scenes when you share on topics that have contradicted him or say you're having a conversation on HIV and you bring up issues that he might not see eye to eye with you on. I mean, what are your conversations like then when you don't see eye to eye? Actually, it happens less often than you think. What I don't think he really reads my columns uh, <laughs> because I remember when I was bringing out my first book, 
in Liberal Doses, which is a compilation of my uh, columns up to that point, my publisher said, we asked him to do a forward. So I asked him, he said, okay, but can you please send me, you know, a sample of your columns so I know what you write about. So I thought, oh, well, he doesn't read, <laughs> he doesn't read me. Oh, no. Um, ah, I know, you know, you kind of expect parents to be the first to, to read. But I do think that over the years, sometimes people tell him what I write, especially where they think that, I'm contradicting him sure. and all that. So sometimes he'll ask me and I will explain. And, you know, it, it doesn't really bother him as much as it does other people. And some, well, my point of view and his point of view on some things are different. Uh, but he doesn't, you know, I, you know, my column, I'm, I'm not the number one columnist in the world, you know, so it, it doesn't bother, I'm not writing for the New York Times, so it doesn't really merit his attention that much uh, that he should worry so much about it. So we don't have these big conversations. I mean, the, the times I've had conversations with him on HIV, it's always mm. been very professional, uh, where I've come as the president of the Nation AIDS Council, I've tried to present facts and figures and given him the larger picture issue, you know, how it impacts on the economy, how it impacts on young people, uh, that sort of thing. And he gets that. He, he gets that pretty well. Yeah. So you've had to sort of canvas for his time. Yes. As his daughter, we think that you have special access to him. Uh, no. But no. <laughs> no, I mean, I suppose I could, you know, like I mm. could sort of insert things over dinner or something like that. But I was very well aware that you know, because I had this advantage, because I had this privilege, and a lot of people don't, I right. didn't feel like I should take advantage of that position. Mm -hmm. um, just like I didn't, I mean, I could have written about HIV in every single column, but I never did. I only did it for World AIDS Day, which is December 1st. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I, I just feel that there are so many issues. Um, and I, I didn't want to you know, use that privilege to give myself an advantage over everyone else. So that's yeah. really interesting because people think, you know, when you grow up in such a position as yours with the access that you have, that you somehow grow up with a silver spoon in your mouth. Uh, what do you say to that? Not at all. You know, we were brought up as very ordinary people. Of course, you know, my dad was one of the few private doctors in our little town. So he had a kind of position. Everyone knew Dr. Mahathir. Everyone went to Maha Clinic, his clinic, that sort of thing. But in the family, we were always uh, reminded to be mindful of how we behave and, and everything. You know, I'm, I'm of that generation where just to say my parents' name, was difficult because it seemed disrespectful. If someone said, who are your parents? It, it was so hard to actually say their name. It's a very, very traditional thing. And so I'm still shocked, you know, where I meet young people and I say, do I know your parents? And they go, yes, I'm Tan Sri so-and-so's son, you know, and I'm like, wow. You know? Um, so we, we were, you know, brought up as regular people. So 
and not ever, you know, made aware that we were special or we were better off or anything. You know, I went to a public school. I mean, there were no private schools anyway. We went to a public school and I had friends from every, uh, you know, level of society and, and it just didn't make any difference. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very different scene, I think, in those days. And I like to think that we were brought up with the kind of values that were probably, you know, made made life more civilized. I don't know. I don't know what's the mm-hmm. correct word, but we were always, always told you're not better than other people. What's going to make the difference is your character, your education. And so you have to work on that, you know, and we're always told you can't, must never lie. You know, must never cheat. That's that is. And whose thing. values were that? Did you have a My sense dad. whose values were that? I mean, how hands on the dad was was your dad? Oh, really hands on. <laughs> you know, really hands on, especially when it came to this sort of thing. You're caught lying, or you're caught cheating, or you're caught stealing. Even if it's a pencil, uh, you can be sure that there will be a family meeting, and someone's gonna get it. <laughs> you know, so a lot of discipline. I mean, my dad, you know, my parents are old fashioned in that way. So, yeah, so we grew up with a lot of discipline, um, especially about education. I mean, you know, there's no such thing as not going to school or anything like that. And speaking of education, you talk about transiting into the job world and you write, as any job seeker knows, looking for and applying for jobs is a soul-destroying effort. So again, you know, people think you may have gone through life with it all easy, with doors being open for you, but you actually share some surprises in this book, The Apple and the Tree, about, for example, applying for university and jobs. You write about facing a panel at Cardiff, uh, and they're going line by line through your university <laughs> admission essay, asking you to substantiate what you meant. How important yes. was it for you to prove yourself in academia and in the jobs world? Well, I must say that when I was in university, when I was undergrad, you know, I I wasn't doing much to prove myself. Uh, I was having fun, you know, at at university. I mean, I just did enough to to pass, uh, but I I I wasn't, um, you know, thinking I should be top of the class or anything like that. My parents, you know, wanted us to go to university, wanted us to finish. But they didn't particularly pressure us. You know, I guess they, they're kind of unusual Asian parents. They never, never, mm-hmm. you know, they're both doctors, but none of us became doctors. Uh, they never, never said, you have to do medicine. Or, you can do what you want. But you just have to complete university. And that's it. They weren't even fussed about going on to do master's or PhD or whatever, you know. Um so yeah, I, and that bit I was talking about finding a job. I was actually in the UK and and not really wanting to come home at first, and you know looking around uh, for a job, trying for different things. Also trying to to go and do a journalism course in university, and mm. it, it was a very different scene, you know, at the time uh, because foreign students weren't as welcome as they are now they're they're much more welcome now because we're we're bringing money right (laughs) at that time this is the 70s this is the 70s yeah yeah for sure you know i mean if there were 
20 places for a, a postgrad course, there might be three for foreigners, you know? So, wow. you know, it wasn't easy to get in. And, and I obviously didn't do very well in that department. I didn't get in anywhere at the time. And I had a, a, a job there that actually, I mean, I must say that my dad did help um, because he knew this, this person who owned this magazine. Um, and I went there, but it was really a dodgy kind of enterprise. And I left and then, then I was left with like, oh, it's horrible being unemployed. I mean, I really know what it's like to be unemployed. Uh, because it's, it is soul destroying, you know, like every day you don't have anything to do. And it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's, you know, you sort of feel worthless because yeah. you're, you, you are not doing anything. You're not contributing anything. You're certainly not earning anything. Mm -hmm. And, and those, those uh, few months, especially it was winter was, was really not, not very pleasant at all. And eventually my mom said, you know, just come home. I mean, I talk about a, a, a big tragedy that happened that, you know, just sort of devastated me. And, um, and then my mom said, come home. So I, I came home and I, I started um, a job, which I began with, you know, the usual, oh, here's this, you know, this VIP daughter coming in and thinking she's a hot shot. And so the, the, the first response wasn't great, but I just sunk it down and I, I worked, you know, I really worked. And then they realized, oh, this girl can actually work and she can write and, and she'll do anything. So I, I think after that, I earned my stripes, you know. Speaking of earning, how important has it been for you to earn your own money, to be able to stand on your own feet? And did you always see yourself at the back of your head as sort of standard bearer for what people could expect from the success of a Malay woman? Well, you know, I have my mom as a role model. You know, she's the second Malay woman doctor in the country. And uh, she had many, many achievements on her own accord. So for me, growing up, this was a natural thing that I should go out and work and I should make something uh, for myself. And I, it never, never occurred to me to not work and to not earn my own money. So, yeah, it, it was great. It, you know, you, you suddenly have your... Oh, I mean, I started off with a paltry 800 ringgit, you know, as a cadet reporter. <laughs> but I still did the traditional thing and took my parents out for dinner with my first salary you know, that's that sort of thing. And it makes you feel good, you know, the first time while well, I'm paying the bill. So, it, yeah, it, it, it was a great feeling. And, and it, it's been like that ever since. So, yeah, it's always been quite key. I mean, to, to being able to stand on your own, to have your own dignity, really, uh, in life is, is through earning your own money. So when it came to retirement, um, what did Dr. Mahathir's retirement, your dad's retirement, mean for him and for you? Well, for him, you know, he, he likes to choose his own timing. And as you know, the first time he retired, he didn't tell anyone, uh, not least the family. And he just dropped this, this bomb on the entire country and everyone went into shock, right? Uh, but once we got over the shock, we, the family, we were really happy. 
because then it meant we had him back uh, with us, you know, I mean, for 22 years, 22 years is a lot to give to the country and to miss so many things, uh, you know, I mean, can you imagine like at the start of the year, I mean, their birthdays are in July and we have to book with the office. Like, can you keep their birthdays free <laughs> oh in July <laughs> so that we can do something with them? Wow. And never mind our birthdays. Our <gasps> birthdays, we have to try our luck. Our kids' birthdays, oh, we have to try gosh. our luck. Oh my gosh! But you know, you know, it, it's that's. I mean, that's the life of of a public figure like like him and a politician. The country comes first, yeah. and you know, God forbid, some disaster happens, and he has to go off, and you know. Um, so you know, it, it was great to have him and we could actually have proper family holidays together <laughs> um and and that sort of thing so we we were the the least unhappy people when <laughs> when he left office i'm sure he's seen you in the ups and downs of life and vice versa so how was being forced to step down as the seventh prime minister of malaysia how did that shape him how has that shaped him and how has that impacted your relationship no, it hasn't impacted my relationship with him because, you know, in the past uh, few years and especially for the last election, I was actually on the same side. You know, I, I campaigned for Pakatan Harapan. I was really happy uh, when they won. I mean, it was incredible. I don't think anyone can ever, ever replicate the feeling of everybody on the day that that we realized that, you know, uh, with one, it, it was just a wonderful feeling. I mean, I, I talk about it. I mean, the, the sky seemed clearer, the air seemed fresher, and all that. So when it went the other way around, um, early last year, it, it was heartbreaking. It was literally heartbreaking for a lot of people. And um, you know, like, how could this have all ended so quickly? I mean, I mean I, there are lots of analysis of why, but that that. It, it, that emotional thing, you know. I mean, I was there with him and his entire cabinet and, and supporters on the day that they, they realized that they really, really had lost the government. And, you know, it, it was just, I it was just so sad. It was just so sad, you know, like all that work, all that work. And, and the work, Actually, you know, when you think about it, it took 10 years or so, or 20 years even. And then it all ended like that. And now we're in this state where, you know, I don't know, I think we're ruled by imbeciles. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, I think Malaysians have got a taste of being able to change. And I think they'll do it again at some point. But... I don't know if, I mean, I don't know if Dad will be able to see it or I will be able to see it, but I think it will come again one day. Let's end with a view to the future. As, as what, I understand one of the things that you've been working on is a website for women travelers. You also completed your master's in your mid-60s. Um, and, then, and then Omicron is here and there's so much uncertainty. So I wonder what matters to you now, Marina? I think... What matters most to me now is really, you know, copy the M, you know, take the opportunity. I mean, I'm so glad that I did my master's when I did, because, you know, I managed to finish it in 2019. Um, 
if I had been any later, if I'd hesitated about going mm-hmm. to do it because it meant being away from home for a long time on my own, um, I would just be devastated if I had to, you know, cut it short and do it online or whatever because I loved being back at university. And now I, I realize that whatever I I want to do, whatever opportunities I have, I just do it. I mean, sometimes, you know, things just happen and, and you just have to see it for what it is. Like the other day, my, my office flooded, you know, and, and, um, oh, no. and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, that was an expense I wasn't expecting to have. And then I realized, well, you know, it is an opportunity to to refresh things and and um, and rejuvenate and and all this sort of thing and and I'm I'm going into 2022 with that attitude that even with this sort of pandemic which has made me really rethink a lot of priorities I'm going into 2022 with a refreshed view of the world I hope um, and do things that will rebuild, rejuvenate, that sort of thing. Um, Because I think we all need it. I think, you know, the the pandemic was trying to tell us something, that we can't keep up. We can't keep on the way we have. So we have to do something that's different and new and that benefits the most people. Yeah. This book's an amazing glimpse into your life. And I'm just curious, did you have to run it by Dr. Mahat there? Has he read it? Has you read the drafts? No. Well, you know, I, I kept it very close to my heart. I didn't let anyone in my family read it. Not my husband, not my father, nobody. I had friends who read individual chapters so that they could check things for me. But none of them read the whole thing. And um, when I got my, my first copies, I gave the very first copy to my dad uh, because I thought he should have it. And he started reading it, but he hasn't gotten past the childhood bit. And then he had any early things. reviews from him yet? Uh, I don't remember that. It's a very <laughs> common. Uh, <laughs> I said, "Well, you wouldn't, would you?" Um, <laughs> but yeah, so far, um, not not uh, not many bad reviews. At least not from those close to me. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's a relief. It's a very personal story and uh, told only the way you can. As I said, it reads like a novel. So thank you so much for the book and for this interview. We've been speaking with Marina Mahathir about her latest book, The Apple and the Tree, Life as Dr. Mahathir's Daughter. I'm Michelle Martin. Marina, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.